Evidence and Answers. How can you share your faith with an atheist? The thought of it may be overwhelming. However, there are many flaws with this belief. Yes, you heard it right. They do believe in something. Just not an all-powerful and loving creator that we know personally as God. In Dr. Norman Geisler's new book, Atheist's Fatal Flaw, we will hear many of the arguments for the Christian faith. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetics Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat will be interviewing Dr. Norman Geisler about his new book and how we can share with an atheist. Here's part one. He's the founder and president emeritus of Southern Evangelical Seminary and author of over 90 books, many in the area of apologetics. The men that you know out there have been mentored by this man, Dr. Geisler, who's had a tremendous impact in the defense of the gospel in our generation. So it is a privilege for us to have once again with us one of our favorite guests, Dr. Norman Geisler. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Pat. Well, Dr. Geisler, you've authored over 90 books, and you've come out with a new one here, The Atheist's Fatal Flaw. What is the difference in this book compared to the other books you have written on atheism? You know, so anyone who has written on atheism from this perspective, great different ways you can attack. Well, but this is unique in that we take their own statements and their own complaints against God and show that... What's the difference in this... ...against the very things that are necessary to fulfill their... Re- you know, a complaint against God, so written defeating this internal inconsistent. They asked for God to intervene to attack to a situation. It says, you intervened, we take violating the very principle and their is told and don't want to be... Ch- Some people ask, why do we need to know atheists and how to counter them. I mean, shouldn't we just quote the Bible when the power of the word convict them? Well, you know, the people uh, have a half-truther coming from because they recognize error in the world and change counterfeit unless you know the genuine. On the other hand, if you don't understand a disease, you don't know how to treat it. So we studied you know. to counteract the disease and we study error in order to know how to counteract it. It's just a, almost a perfect analogy between the medical worlds. Yes, and it goes in line with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. We de- all arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And in order for the skeptic or the atheist to listen, sometimes you so we demolish to know how to- before they'll take you and your message seriously. Isn't that correct? That's exactly right. It's a great verse there in Colossians 2.8 says, Beware of philosophy, but you can't be aware of it unless you be aware of it. And it goes in line. There's no way that you can treat a sickness if you don't understand it. The people most likely to catch a disease are the people who don't understand how the disease works and how you catch it. Right, and this book comes from your background, not only in the study of atheism, but in dialogues and discussions, and even in debates with them throughout the United States and the world, isn't that? Exactly. That's right. For about 25 years, there, 
since 2008, engaged in debates with uh, atheists and agnostics all over the world. And so it's just with them and their arguments as well as reading their books. So this is a great tool for Christians to engage atheists and even use their own quotes and arguments to show some of the flaws in their positions. The book is filled with quotes from atheists. In fact, uh, we quote atheists more than anyone else in the whole whole book. Right. That's right. They're convicted out of their own mouths. You know, they uh, we, we take what they say to their view and find out that it's inconsistent because if we did what they were done to fix the problem of evil in the world, we'd have to destroy their freedom because every one of their arguments, their own freedom, every one of their arguments that would be a solution to some. Now, there are solutions you a person to the kingdom of God. You must simply just love them. Why is it important that we understand how to that they're reasonable, sound, logical arguments here? Well, it's not an either-or. It's, it's not either love or to their extent that it's in love and loving reason. The Bible commands us to do it as the reason. The most fundamental rule is that we're told to give a reason for our hope. First Peter 3.15, come now the raise their own the Lord. Isaiah 18, content would be a solution, tells us so. Now, defense of the gospel, Philippians 1, we're commanded by Scripture into the kingdom. We're commanded by Scripture. The Bible culture demands that we live in a, an increasingly unbelieving culture. And if we're going to reach the people, which the Bible tells us here, well, it's not a reach our generation. We're going to understand the generation and be able to relate to the convention. And then third, needs it. The statistics show that the most fundamental 80% of our young people, after they leave a college, so we need to hang on to our own people, and apologetics is one of the key ways of doing it. And then the final reason, results confirm I'm several people who have come to God. One, we're somebody giving a reason and making Christians reasonable from St. Peter, the Bible, J. Bujicevsky on the modern world, and C.S. Lewis, all uh, were reasons uh, into the faith. Right, and I know you've, through you, uh, your writings, have led uh, atheists to faith in Christ. The general hundred, I would assume. Our book, I have a file, and then third, the Trump, the six, uh, uh, we're losing for a number of books, but primarily for, I don't have all being atheists, leave with uh, a, it's very gratifying to see when apologetics is one of the key ways uh, is being done, and it's just a writing and telling about what happened. Uh, Anthony Flood, through the whole thing, you know, he, he, he reasoned his way uh, from St. Augustine and to uh, J. Booker's whatsoever that prompted him. It was just reason. You know, if the universe had a beginning and everything has a beginning, has a cause, and there must be a God out there. If every complex design needs a designer, and we know life is a complex designer, must be a complex designer. So atheists are seeing that reason does work. Yes, and for those who don't know the name of Anthony Flew, he was a titan, a giant among those in the atheist world. He was their leading atheist philosopher of our generation, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He was probably the most notorious atheist 
of the 20th century, as the subtitle of the book indicates. And when the most notorious atheist turns to God, you know that something must be happening. And so the people who put together the book were very careful because they knew the atheist would not be happy, and they would say, oh, it wasn't genuine, or he didn't agree with uh, everything that was said. And Gary Habermas told me, because he had debated him many times, he told me that they got him to sign off on every single page of the book. He had to put his initials on the uh, page, indicating, yes, this is what I'm saying. Yes, and I interviewed the co-author on that, Anthony Varghese, so you can listen to that interview I have with Anthony Varghese on Evidence and Answers. Well, Dr. Geisler, and before we get into the thesis of the book, what are some of the basic arguments for the existence of an intelligent creator? Well, some of the basic arguments, I just alluded to two of them, the cosmological and the teleological and the moral. The third one, the cosmological, says in one form, if the universe had a beginning, and it must have had a beginner, uh, the Big Bang evidence for the origin of the universe shows that it had a beginning. Even the agnostic Robert Jastrow said that Genesis 1-1 was the best explanation for the origin of the universe in the light of the Big Bang. And then second argument, everything has a, a complex design, had a designer. We know that life is irreducibly complex and it has specified complexity and only an intelligent designer explains that. So we have the cosmological and teleological argument there. And then finally, C.S. Lewis, who was converted basically through the moral argument, he was an atheist and said there can't be a God because there's injustice. And then he said, how do I know there's injustice? If I don't know justice, I can't know something that's not just. And if I know what's just, then there must be a moral law and a moral lawgiver. So those three, I would say, are the most important ones. Now, before we go on, there's couple counter-arguments that we hear real popular today, so I feel I need to ask these since we've got you here. The first one is, in trying to counter the cosmological argument, the multiple universe argument, that there are multiple universes out there, and one just, you know, of the millions of universes that are out there, this one just exploded into being, and it just happened to be the just right one that made life possible here. Well, first of all, there's no scientific evidence uh, for it. it's pure speculation. It's not science at all. So the argument isn't scientific. It goes out of the realm of science into pure speculation. And secondly, it doesn't matter if I found a complex design in a junkyard, you know, if, uh, say if I found a, a small engine that worked and happened to be a junkyard, it doesn't prove that uh, it, it wasn't designed. It just proves that there's a bunch of stuff around it that doesn't look like it's designed. If you went to a football game and there's people in the stands who are spelling out the name of the home team by the colors of shirts they were wearing, it wouldn't matter how many people were in other stadiums or around the world that didn't spell out any design on their shirt. You still have the design. So adding universes that uh, supposedly don't have design in them doesn't negate the design that we do have in the universe. Yeah, it just seems to push the question back one step, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like uh, Dawkins in the uh, debate, or rather in the movie there, who says, well, where did life begin? And then he says, well, we don't know. And uh, 
this, could there be an intelligent cosmos? Well, there might be, but it'd be on some other planet, you know, and it must have evolved there. Well, we can't go to the other planet. We don't have the evidence. Uh, so it just pushes it back one step further. It's going to need, it's, uh, no matter what planet it happened on, it's going to have an intelligent cause. Yeah, all right. And then there's a second counter-argument when it comes to the design argument where atheists say, well, things came together by random chance with the appearance of design. You know, for example, fairy circles, you know, these mushrooms spew out their spores and the next morning you wake up and there's a circle of mushrooms there. So it's random chance, but it appears to look like design. That's how the human mind, they see something and they automatically put some kind of design to it. Yeah, well, uh, it's... With the respect to the human mind or human life, even or just life, it doesn't just appear to have design; it has design. So it isn't a question of of appearance; it's a question of actuality. The closer you get to it, the more you examine it, the more you realize it has design to it. And even on the microscopic level, not just the macroscopic level, you can put the telescope, a Hubble telescope, and the more you look at the universe the more it seems to be designed, and you put the the electron microscope there, and it has design, so you don't escape design by getting smaller or by getting larger, so you know it's real. And then you have this whole thing. If you define design that way, like Dawkins does, that life, biological life, is something that looks very much like it's designed, but just you have to ask, why does it look like a design, and why does it continue to look like design, no matter which way you look at it, maybe it's because it was designed. And it isn't just apparently designed, it's actually designed. Yeah, that seems to be the most reasonable conclusion here. Now, one of the most powerful arguments against the existence of God, I'm sure you always encounter, is the problem of evil. How does a good and loving and all-powerful God allow evil in this world, which contradicts his nature? Well, you know... That's where this book comes in, Atheist Fatal Flaw. You, you can approach a problem of evil several ways. There are three, three main ways, and I think one of them is very complex and difficult. It's the one that we usually take, and that is take every argument they bring up and try and answer. You know, like they bring up the, the slaughter of the Canaanites. Look at that evil, and so we try and answer that. You know, and they, they bring up all of these cases of apparent evil in the universe that doesn't have a intelligent designer it doesn't look like it has but we start C.S. Lewis started at the base of the argument that is they can't get their argument off the ground without presupposing a moral designer because they have to say there's evil in this world it's unjust it's unjust but you can't be un or unjust unless you know what justice is and unless you have a moral law an absolute moral law you can't even get your argument off the ground. So they're living, as Francis Schaeffer said, on borrowed capital. They have to borrow the Judeo-Christian view of a natural law before they can even take their argument and argue that there are things in this world that don't correspond to that law. Well, if there's an absolute moral law, there must be an absolute moral law giver. So that doesn't make sense. And then there's a second way which we take in this book, The Atheist Fatal Flaw. You look at all of their complaints against God, and you see, uh, what would you have to do to fulfill that complaint? In other words, what kind of world would God have to make 
in order to eliminate the atheist uh, claim? And the answer is that whatever God did to intervene, to change the world, to satisfy the atheist complaint, he would have to either diminish or destroy the atheist freedom. And no atheist wants the freedom destroyed. For example, take the most bombastic atheist today, maybe, I don't know, maybe Dawkins. Uh, he, he says some uh, outrageous things. And take all his statements. I could eliminate a lot of evil. All we'd have to do is cram his mouth full of cotton. And if he had a mouth full of cotton, he couldn't speak all those things. <laughs> But he wouldn't like that, would he? That would be a violation of his freedom. Or, if you don't want to be that gross, you could just give him an excedrin headache, number two, every time he thought an atheist thought. Well, he wouldn't like that, would he? Because in the first case, you're violating his free action. In the second case, you're violating his free thought. And you can take other illustrations, and they amount to the same thing. Well, we show in the book, they're really three different classes, A, B, and C, of kinds of intervention that God can do. C, God is already doing, providing conscience and moral law and, and moral exhortations and everything. So, and A and B, by God interfering to uh, destroy everyone's freedom or interfering to destroy some people's freedoms, are contrary to what the atheist believes. He would be the first to complain to high heaven if you took away or diminished his freedom, but that's what he's calling for. So he's calling for the impossible. He's calling for God to do what if God did, he would complain even worse because God intervened and destroyed his free will. Dr. Geisler, explain to us the origin of evil, how evil entered into the world, because freedom plays a big part of that. Yeah, it does. I mean, the origin of evil from a biblical point of view and using biblical words, God created free creatures called uh, angels. So one of them is named Lucifer, and Lucifer freely chose to bring evil in the world. So God made good creatures. One of the good things he gave them was free will. They used their good free will to bring evil into the universe. So you can't blame God, uh, otherwise you're blaming him for making them free. So the very thing they cherish the most, their own free choice, you're, you're blaming God for uh, creating it. Now, some atheists will argue, well, why didn't God get it right in the first place? For example, one of the quotes here, Bertrand Russell, he states, If I were going to beget a child, knowing that the child was going to be a homicidal maniac, I should be responsible for his crimes. If God knew in advance the sins of which man would be guilty, he was clearly responsible for all the consequences of those sins when he decided to create man. So in other words, God knew what was going to happen. He knew these awful things would happen in the future because he's all-knowing. Then God is ultimately responsible in his fault, right, that there's evil in this world. Yeah, God could have created a world where where nobody could have done that. He could have created creatures that wouldn't have sinned. In fact, he did. They're called animals. And the atheist is really saying, why did God make human beings? Why did he make free creatures? So we're right back to the same thing. They have to destroy their freedom in order to answer that question. The truth of the matter is that God created free creatures, and it's good to be free, and God allowed them to exercise their freedom, and he didn't intervene to destroy their freedom, which they would complain to high heaven about if he did. And that's the kind of world that we have. 
So they're complaining against the very kind of world that allows them to be an atheist, that allows them to rebel against God. God was so loving and so good that he made creatures like himself that were good and free, and he made creatures that were so good and so free that they were able to rebel against him. Now, atheists argue that, well, if God exists, then why does he allow such great evil to take place? I mean, he, he doesn't have to intervene in every wrong decision, but just in the big ones, you know, such as the Holocaust or the genocide in Sudan and Cambodia. Why doesn't he just intervene on these big disasters here? And many state it would be immoral for anyone to stand and watch and not help a woman being raped on the street. But God seems to stand by and watch the cruel treatment and death of millions. How do we answer well, there, that? They're assuming, number one, that God's not going to do anything about it. But the Christian view, God is going to do something about it. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And there's a judgment day uh, that's coming. And all evil is going to be judged and all good is going to be rewarded. So they're assuming that the story is over. It's kind of like the argument, you know, if God were all-powerful, he could destroy evil. If he were all good, he would destroy evil. But evil is not destroyed, therefore there is no such God. Well, what he forgets is in the minor premise, there's one word, yet. Evil is not yet destroyed. It doesn't mean it's never going to be. It's like stopping me in the middle of a sentence and saying, that doesn't make any sense. Well, let me finish the sentence, you know. God hasn't finished with his sentence yet. And when he does finish, it's going to make sense. And so sometimes, you know, God, in allowing us to exercise our freedom, sometimes must allow us to experience the sometimes horrific consequences of the bad decisions we make against his will and his law. If he didn't, we would never learn from them, you know. If, if you could play footloose and fancy free at the moral law, there wouldn't be any consequences. Then you would never learn from disobeying the moral law. You know, if every time a murderer put a noose around somebody's neck to kill them, the noose turned to a noodle, then he would never learn from his evil actions. Every time he went to stab somebody, he could turn the knife into jello. Every time God intervened, He'd be intervening to stop the very consequences of those actions, which have within them the possibility of learning something from the bad action. So that would not be a, a moral world, uh, and the atheist wouldn't like to live in that world, and he would complain that he didn't have freedom. He would say, well, I had freedom only when God wanted me to have freedom, but if I did anything against his will or against him, then he didn't allow me to be free. Well, how free am I if I say to my son, you know, you're free to do anything I tell you to do. And when you grow up and become an adult, you're still free to do anything I tell you to do. And if you, don't, if you do anything I didn't tell you to do, then I'm going to kill you. Well, that wouldn't be freedom because that would be intervening to determine the consequences of actions with somebody didn't have because you didn't allow them to have it. Now, some atheists argue, well, you know, things like the Holocaust, the death of six million, and the, you know, death of millions of others in genocides doesn't seem to have a particular reason or purpose. You know, how would you answer that? Well, first of all, the assumption of the question is wrong. The assumption is uh, that every specific action 
has to have a good purpose for there to be a good purpose. I answer it by saying, first of all, just because you don't know the purpose doesn't mean there is no purpose. Just because I don't know why life grows on thermal vents in the depth of the sea doesn't mean that someday some scientists won't discover it. You know, once they didn't know how a bumblebee could fly and they found out there's a power pack on it. Once there were 180 vestigial organs, leftover organs from the evolutionary days, as the evolutionists say in Darwin's day, now there are only half a dozen of them and we know purposes for those. So just because we don't know a purpose for evil doesn't mean there isn't a purpose for evil. We've run out of time for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed part one of Pat's interview with Dr. Norman Geisler. Evidence and Answers is a ministry of the Pacific Apologetic Center, a subsidiary of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to team up with us, please start with prayer and then to donate, log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us here next week for part two of this exciting interview with your host, Dr. Pat Zucrich.